Clarissa Harlowe, or The History of a Young Lady, Volume 1, by Samuel Richardson, Letter 40. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please go to LibriVox.org. This recording by Patty Brugman. Letter 40. Miss Clarissa Harlowe to Miss Howe in continuation of the subject in letter 38. I will now, though midnight, for I have no sleep in my eyes, resume the subject I was forced so abruptly to quit, and will obey yours, Miss Lloyd's, Miss Campion's, and Miss Dilbulf's call, with as much temper as my divided thought will admit. The dead stillness of this solemn hour will, I hope, contribute to calm my disturbed mind. In order to acquit myself of so heavy a charge as that of having reserves to so dear a friend, I will acknowledge, and I thought I had over and over, that it is owing to my particular situation, if Mr. Lovelace appears to me in a tolerable light, and I take upon me to say that they had opposed to him a man of sense, of virtue, of generosity, one who enjoyed his fortune with credit, who had a tenderness in his nature for the calamities of others, which would have given a moral assurance that he would have been still less wanting in grateful returns to an obliging spirit. Had they opposed such a man as this to Mr. Lovelace, and been as earnest to have me married as now they are, I do not know myself if they would have had reason to tax me with that invincible obstinacy which they lay to my charge. And this, whatever had been the figure of a man, since the heart is what we women should judge by in the choice we make, as the best security for the party's good behavior in every relation of life. But situated as I am, thus persecuted and driven, I own to you that I have now and then had a little more difficulty than I wished for, in passing by Mr. Lovelace's tolerable qualities, to keep up my dislike to him for his others. You say I must have argued with myself in his favour, and in his disfavour, on a supposition, that I might possibly be one day his. I own that I have, and thus called upon my dearest friend, I will set before you both parts of the argument. And first, what occurred to me in his favour. At his introduction into our family, his negative virtues were insisted upon. He was no gamester, no horse-racer, no fox-hunter, no drinker. My poor Aunt Hervey had, in confidence, given us to apprehend most disagreeable evil, especially to a wife of the least delicacy, from a wine-lover. And common sense instructed me that sobriety in a man is no small point to be secured, when so many mischiefs happen daily from excess. I remember that my sister made the most of this favourable circumstance in his character while she had any hopes of him. He was never thought to be a niggard, not even ungenerous, nor when his conduct came to be inquired into, an extravagant squanderer. His pride, so far, was it a laudable pride, 
secured from him that. Then he was ever ready to own his errors. He was no jester upon sacred things, poor Mr. Wyerley's fault, who seemed to think that there was wit in saying bold things, which would shock a serious mind. His conversation with us was always unexceptionable, even chastely so, which, be his actions what they would, shewed him capable of being influenced by decent company, and that he might probably therefore be a led man rather than a leader in other company. And one late instance, so late as last Saturday evening, has raised him not a little in my opinion with regard to this point of good, and at the same time of manly behaviour. As to the advantage of birth, that is, of his side, above any man who has been found out for me, if we may judge by that expression of his which you were pleased with at the time, that upon true quality and hereditary distinction, if good sense were not wanting, humour sat as easy as his glove, that with as familiar an air was his familiar expression, while none but the prosperous upstart mushroomed into rank, another of his peculiars, was arrogantly proud of it. If, I say, we may judge of him by this, we shall conclude in his favour, that he knows what sort of behaviour is to be expected from persons of birth, whether he act upon it or not. Conviction is halfway to amendment. His fortunes in possession are handsome, in expectation splendid, so nothing need be said on that subject. But it is impossible, say some, that he should make a tender or kind husband. Those who are for imposing upon me such a man as Mr. Solomes, and by methods so violent, are not entitled to make this objection. But now on this subject let me tell you how I have argued with myself, for still you must remember that I am upon the extenuating part of his character. A great deal of the treatment a wife may expect from him will possibly depend upon herself. Perhaps she must practice as well as promise obedience. To a man so little used to control, and must be careful to oblige. And what husband expects not this? The more, perhaps, if he had not reason to assure himself of the preferable love of his wife before she became such and how much easier and pleasanter to obey the man of her choice, if he should be even more unreasonable, sometimes, than one she would not have had. Could she have avoided it? Then I think, as the man were the farmers of his matrimonial office, and made obedience a part of the woman's vow, she ought not, even in policy, to show him that she can break through her part of the contract however lightly she may think of the instance, lest he should take it into his head, himself as judge, to think as lightly of other points, which she may hold more important, but indeed no point so solemnly vowed can be slight. This principled, and acting accordingly, what a wretch must that husband be who could treat such a wife brutally, Will Lovelace's wife be the only person to whom he will not pay the grateful debt of civility and good manners? He is allowed to be brave, 
whoever knew a brave man, if a brave man of sense, and universally base man, and how much the gentleness of our sex, and the manner of our training, up and education, make us need the protection of the brave, and the countenance of the generous. Let the general approbation which we are all so naturally inclined to give to men of that charity testify. At worst, will he confine me prisoner to my chamber? Will he deny me the visits of my dearest friend and forbid me to correspond with her? Will he take from me the mistressly management which I had not faultily discharged? Will he set a servant over me with license to insult me? Will he, as not a sister, permit his cousins Montague? And would either of these ladies accept a, of a permission to insult and tyrannize over me? It cannot be. Why, then, think I often, do you tempt me, O oh, my cruel friends, to try the difference? And then has the secret pleasure intruded itself, to be able to reclaim such a man to the paths of virtue and honor, to be a secondary means, if I were to be his, of saving him and preventing the mischiefs so enterprising a creature might otherwise be guilty of, if he be such a one. When I have thought of him in these lights, and that as a man of sense he will sooner see his errors than another, I own to you that I have had some difficulty to avoid taking the path they so violently endeavor to make me shun, and all that command of my passions which has ever been attributed to me as my greatest praise, and in so young a creature as my distinction, has hardly been sufficient for me. And let me add that the favor of his relations, all but himself unexceptionable, has made a good deal of additional weight thrown in the same scale. But now in his disfavor, when I have reflected upon the prohibition of my parents, the giddy appearance disgraceful to our sex, that such a preference would have, that there is no manner of likelihood inflamed by the recounter, and upheld by art and ambition on my brother's side, that ever the animosity will be got over. That I might therefore be at perpetual variance with all my own family, that I must go to him and to his as an obliged and half-fortuned person, that his aversion to them all is as strong as theirs to him, that his whole family are hated for his sake, they hating ours in return, that he has a very immoral character as to women, that knowing this, it is a high degree of impurity to think of joining in wedlock with such a man, that he is young, unbroken, his passions unsubdued, that he is a violent in temper, yet artfully, I am afraid vindictive too, that such a husband might unsettle me in all my own principles, and hazard my future hopes, that his own relations, two excellent aunts and an uncle, from whom he has such large expectations, have no influence upon him, that what tolerable qualities he has are found more in pride than in virtue, that allowing as he does the excellency of moral precepts, and believing the doctrine of future rewards and punishments, he can live as if he despised the one and defied the other, 
the probability that the taint arising from such free principles may go down into the manners of posterity, that I, knowing these things, and the importance of them, should be more inexcusable than one who knows them not, since an error against judgment is worse, infinitely worse, than an error in judgment. Reflecting upon these things, I cannot help conjuring you, my dear, to pray with me, and to pray for me, that I may not be pushed upon such indiscreet measures, as will render me inexcusable to myself, for that is the test, after all. The world's opinion ought to be but a secondary consideration. I have said in his praise that he is extremely ready to own his errors, but I have sometimes made a great drawback upon this article in his disfavor, having been ready to apprehend that this ingenuousness may possibly be attributable to two causes, neither of them by any means credible to him. The one, that his vices are so much his masters, that he attempts not to conquer them. The other, that he may think it policy to give up one half of his character to save the other, that the whole may be blamable. By this means, silencing by acknowledgment the objections he cannot answer, which may give him the praise of ingenuousness, when he can obtain no other, and when the challenged proof might bring out upon discussion other evils. These, you will allow, are severe constructions, but everything his enemies say of him cannot be false. I will proceed by and by. Sometimes we have both thought him one of the most undesigning, merely witty men we ever knew, at other times one of the deepest creatures we ever conversed with, so that when in one visit we have imagined we fathomed him, in the next he has made us ready to give him up as impenetrable. This impenetrableness, my dear, is to be put among the shades of his character. Yet upon the whole you have been so far of his party, that you have contested that his principal fault is over-frankness and too much regardlessness of appearance, and that he is too giddy to be very artful. You would have it that at the time he says anything good, he means what he speaks, that his variableness and levity are constitutional, owing to sound health and to a soul and body. That was your observation, fitted for and pleased with each other, and hence you concluded that could this consentatiousness, as you call it, of corporal and animal faculties, be pointed by discretion, that is to say, could his vivacity be confined within the pale of but moral obligations, he would be far from being rejectable as a companion for life. But I used then to say, and I still am of opinion, that he wants a heart. If he does, he wants everything. A wrong head may be convinced, may have a right turn given it, but one who is able to give a heart, if a heart be wanting, divine grace working a miracle, or next to a miracle, can only change a bad heart. Should one not fly the man who is but suspected of such a one? 
What, oh, what do parents do when they endeavor to force a child's inclination, but make her think better than otherwise she would think of a man obnoxious to themselves, and perhaps whose character will not stand examination? I have said that I think Mr. Lovelace a vindictive man upon my word. I have sometimes doubted whether his perseverance in his addresses to me has not been the more obstinate since he has found himself so disagreeable to my friends. From that time I verily think he has been the more fervent in them, yet courts them not. Defiance. For this indeed he pleads disinterestedness. I am sure he cannot politeness. And the more plausibility, as he is apprised of the ability they have to make it worth his while to court them, "'Tis true,' he has declared, "'and with so much reason, "'or there would be no bearing him, "'and the lowest submissions on his part "'would not be accepted, "'and, to oblige me, "'has offered to seek a reconciliation with them "'if I would give him hope of success. "'As to his behaviour at church, "'the Sunday before last, "'I lay no stress upon that, "'because I doubt there was too much outward pride "'in his intentional humility, "'and Shorey, who is not his enemy, "'could not have mistaken it. "'I do not think him so deeply learned "'in human nature or in ethics "'as some have thought him. "'Don't you remember how he stared at "'the following trite observations "'which every moralist could have furnished him with? Complaining as he did in half-menacing strain of the obliquies raised against him, that if he were innocent, he should despise the obliquy. If not, revenge would not wipe off his guilt. That nobody ever thought of turning a sword into a sponge. That it was his own power by reformation of an error laid to his charge by an enemy to make that enemy one of his best friends, and, which was the noblest revenge in the world, against his will, such an enemy would not wish him to be without the faults he taxed him with. But the intention, he said, was the wound. How so, I asked him, when that cannot wound without the application? That the adversary only held the sword, he himself pointed it at the breast. And why should he morally resent that malice, which he might be the better for as long as he lived? What could be the reading he has been said to be master of, to wonder as he did at these observations? But indeed he must take pleasure in revenge, and yet holds others to be inexcusable for the same fault. He is not, however, the only one who can see how truly blamed those errors are in another, which they hardly think such in themselves. From these considerations, from these overbalances, it was that I said in a former, and I would not be in love with this man for the world, and it was going further than prudence would warrant, when I was for compounding with you. By the words conditional liking, which you so humorously rally, well, but methinks you say, what is all this to the purpose? This is still but reasoning, 
but if you are in love, you are, and love, like the vapours, is the deeper root for having no sufficient cause assignable for its hold, and so you call upon me again to have no reserves, and so forth. Why then, my dear, if you will have it, I think that, with all his prepondering faults, I like him better than I ever thought I should like him, and those faults considered better perhaps than I ought to like him. And I believe it is possible for the persecution I labor under to induce me to like him still more, especially while I can re recollect to his advantage our last interview, and as every day produces stronger instances of tyranny, I will call it on the other side. In a word, I will frankly own, since you cannot think anything I say too explicit, that were he now but a moral man, I would prefer him to all the men I ever saw. So that this is but conditional liking still, you'll say, nor hope is it more. I never was in love, as it is called, and whether this be it or not I must submit to you, but I will venture to think it is, if it be, no such mighty monarch, no such unconquerable power, as I have heard it represented, and it must have met with greater encouragement than I think I have given it, to be absolutely unconquerable, since I am persuaded that I could yet, without a throb, most willingly give up the one man to get rid of the other. But now to be a little more serious with you, if, my dear, my particular unhappy situation had driven, or led me, if you please, into a liking of the man, and if that liking had, in your opinion, inclined me to love him, should you, whose mind is susceptible of the most friendly impressions, who have such high emotions of the delicacy which ought to be observed by our sex in these matters, and who actually do enter so ha deeply into the distress of one you love, should you have pushed so far that unhappy friend on so very nice a subject, especially when I aimed not, as you could prove by fifty instances it seemed, to guard against being found out, had you rallied me by word of mouth and manner you do, it might have been more in character, especially if your friend's distresses had been surmounted, and if she had affected prudish airs in revolving the subject, but to sit down, to write it, as methinks I see you, with a gladdened eye, and with all the archness of exultation, indeed, my dear, and I take notice of it, rather for the sake of your own generosity than my, for my own sake. For, as I have said, I love your raillery. It is not so very pretty, the delicacy of the subject, and the delicacy of your own mind, considered. I lay down my pen here, that you may consider a little, if you please. I resume, to give you my opinion of the force which figure or person ought to have upon our sex, and this I shall do both generally as to the other sex, and particularly as to this man, whence you will be able to collect how far my friends are in the right or in the wrong when they attribute a good deal of prejudice in favor of one man and in disfavor of the other on the score of figure. But first, let me observe that they see abundant reason on comparing Mr. Lovelace and Mr. Solmes together to believe that this may be a consideration with me, and therefore they believe it is. 
There is certainly something very plausible and attractive, as well as credible, to a woman's choice in figure. It gives a favourable impression, at first sight, in which we wish to be confirmed, and if upon further acquaintance we find reason to be so, we are pleased with our judgment, and like the person better, for having given us cause to compliment our own sagacity in our first-sighted impressions, but nevertheless it has been generally a rule with me to suspect a fine figure both in man and woman, and I have had it a good deal of reason to approve my rule, with regard to men especially, who ought to value themselves rather upon their intellectual than personal qualities. For as to our sex, if a fine woman should be led by the opinion of the world to be in vain and conceited upon her form and features, and that to such a degree as to have neglected the more material and more durable recommendations, the world will be ready to excuse her, since a pretty fool in all she says and in all she does will please, we know not why. But who would grudge this pretty fool her short day, since with her summer sun, when her butterfly flutters are over, and the winter age and furrows arrive, she will feel the just effects of having neglected to cultivate her better faculties, for then lie another Helen. She would be unable to bear the reflection even of her own glass, and being sunk into the insignificances of a mere old woman, she will be entitled to the contempts which follow that character, while the discreet matron who carries up, we will not, in such a one's case, say down, into advanced life, the ever-amiable character of virtuous prudence and useful experience finds solid veneration, take place of airy admiration, and more than supply the want of it. But for a man to be vain of his person, how effeminate! If such a one happens to have genius, it seldom strikes deep into intellectual subjects. His outside usually runs away with him, to adorn, and perhaps intending to adorn, to render ridiculous that person, takes up all his attention. All he does is personal, that is to say for himself, all he admires is himself, and in spite of the correction of the stage, which so often and so justly exposes a coxcomb, he usually dwindles down and sinks into that character, and of consequence becomes the scorn of one sex and the jest of the other. This is generally the case of your fine figures of men, and of those who value themselves on dress and outward appearance, whence it is, that I repeat, that mere person in a man is a despicable consideration. But if a man besides figure has learning, and such talents as would have distinguished him, whatever were his form, then indeed person is an addition, and if he has not run to egregiously into self-admiration, and if he has preserved his morals, he is truly a valuable being. Mr. Lovelace has certainly taste, and as far as I am able to determine, he has judgment in most of the politer arts. But although he has a humorous way of carrying it off, yet one may see that he values himself not a little, both on his person and his parts, and even upon his dress, and yet he has so happy an ease in the latter that it seems to be the least part of his study, and as to the former I should hold myself inexcusable, 
if I were to add to his vanity by shrewing the least regard for what is too evidently so much his. And now, my dear, let me ask you, have I come to your expectation? If I have not, when my mind is more at ease, I will endeavour to please you better. For methinks my sentences drag, my style creeps, my imagination is sunk. My spirits serve me not, only to tell you that whether I have more or less, I am wholly devoted to the commands of my dear Miss Howe. P.S. The insolent Betty Barnes has just now fired me anew by reporting to me the following expressions of the hideous creature, Soames, that he is sure of the coy girl, and that with little labor to himself, that be I ever so averse to him beforehand, he can depend upon my principle, and it will be a pleasure to him to see by what pretty degrees I shall come to horrid wretch, that it was Sir Oliver's observation, who knew the world perfectly well, that fear was a better security than love for a woman's good behavior to her husband, although for his part to such a fine creature truly, he would try what love would do, for a few weeks at least, being unwilling to believe that the old knight used to aver that fondness spoils more wives than it makes good. What think you, my dear, of such a wretch as this, tutored, too, by that old surly misogynist, as he was deemed Sir Oliver? End of chapter 40 Read by Patty Brugman